Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Or Offer. Or is the founder and CEO of SimilarWeb. SimilarWeb is a public company. It's SMWB is the ticker symbol. And it's a data and analytics platform. Or welcome to World of DAS. Thank you. Thank you. We're already exactly one year old public company now. Exactly one year, one year public company. Okay, amazing. Now, Similar Web, it's a data company kind of at its core. You collect data about website and app traffic and then sell both data product and you sell an application. And so I've been thinking about data markets for a long time and have a thought that like data companies are kind of winner take most markets. How do you see data companies in general? I agree with this statement, I think. And SimilarWeb is, is a core data company, like classic um, data as a service that package UI on top of that. So we have all the elements of collecting all the data collection team, data analysis that need to create the data sets. And then we have a platform team to package it. And what I like to explain the mental model, we like collecting digital signals that we found for different sources. We call them the ingredients. And we use those multiple ingredients to cook different data sets. The main goal is predict how the internet behave, how the digital world behaves. So the digital world for us is website and apps. And we try every day to predict how, let's say, 3 billion devices, that is desktop and mobile phones, move between 200 million websites and 5 million apps and the usage they have every day. I like this idea of this analogy of ingredients. We have a similar analogy at SafeGraph where we like to say we sell high quality butter to pastry chefs. <laughs> I love the cooking example. I, uh, long stories about it. And then they take the butter and then maybe they take a bunch of their own ingredients, and but also their own ingenuity. And then they create this great croissant. Now, of course, just because you have high quality butter doesn't mean you're going to end up with a great croissant. So you do need the ingenuity on the other end. I take it even further. I'm saying I have the ingredients and I like to grow my own ingredients. So I have ah. my own farms. I'm growing my ingredients because I want to have the best ingredients in my restaurant. So I have the farms growing the ingredients. Okay. You got your own cows. And I have the best chef, okay, to know how to take this ingredient and really make the secret of the cooking. If it's an oven or on fire or on whatever cooking method they choose, then the product can organize the dish on the plate to be beautiful and the right oh size. God. This is like the product element, the UI on top of that. You really take it all the way. It's kind of data companies start to dominate their niche. One idea could be, okay, well, they're dominating. They could raise prices. Another idea could be, okay, well, you could lower prices to gain market share because as you're dominating, your CACs essentially are going down. And so you don't need as much money for sales and marketing. How do you think about like pricing power and how you should be thinking about that as these data companies start to dominate their niche. I saw a few examples like that in the past. I'm not a believer of squeezing this lemon if you can. Like, okay, I'm in Monopoly now because usually data companies, they start controlling their niche and then they start consolidating and then they're becoming like the one dominant player that have the best data. And if you start abusing that position, I saw it, for example, in the traditional market research when Nielsen have the 
best data maybe someone on e-com on what people buy or what people budge and then they start raising their price and then what creating is a situation where the customer starts to hate them because they forced to pay too much money for a value they don't see but the real situation and what happened in those kind of situation a new competition is rise and they seeing a huge opportunity and then somebody come and disrupt your market because there is not a real connection between the price and the value the customer expect to get so I don't think it's good strategy it's like a short short term short term and bad for the long term interesting what happens if a data company is in more of a hyper competitive space where it isn't winner take most is that just an example where it's a bad business or are there are still ways in that case to make a great business so if I try to think of example I saw look lately there's few big companies players and it's contents competition we can look on the contact data and world when you have companies like zoom info for example and you have LinkedIn and cognizant and I think Lucia and their pull data there's a lot of players I think they can name maybe like 20 30 players there's few bigs few medium and few smalls and you can see that there's a lot of activity and I still still think it's a great market certainly can't argue with zoom info it's like an amazing company Yeah, and they're able to grow up while there is LinkedIn there that's LinkedIn from what I remember is like a $10 billion ARR now. But in the end, it's a data business. They have like contact data. So I think that even with these data verticals that there is a lot of players, I think still there's a lot of opportunities and there's still great market. Even there's contents competition, there's always an angle you can come with. Interesting. Now, you really decided to be both a data company and an application company. Companies like Safegraph, we're just a data company. We have no application at all. There are other companies which are really just an application company and they may have data powering it. How do you think about these things? And do you think they're like more synergistic or do you think they somehow like kind of cannibalize each other? It's an interesting conversation. I remember that internally we had a lot of discussion for many over the years. Are we a data company? Are we a product company? Where we want to be? Why not just being a data? There's a lot of efforts building the UI and you need to put a lot of resource on that. But I'm really a product guy. So I never imagined myself selling only data. And so application was always for me the go-to place. Like I never thought of, like I think even today our API People are buying only the data element from us without the application on top of it. It's still not in the best place, although we're putting a lot of efforts on that lately. But I think it's kind of where I look at it today, I will see the world like that. So if you're selling only data, for example, it's mostly like I call it API. You put yourself in a place that two things happen. One, you're becoming more like OEM. motion like people buying the data to fuel their products because there are not a lot of companies who can use the data as is in API. And the second thing is that you reduce your time because I think once you have only API, only the advanced companies can use you. And once you're putting an application and it's easy to use, then you can increase the time that less advanced people, more roles can start using your data. So I think there is a lot of advantage to have a capabilities application on top of the data, in my perspective. And it's well, certainly easier to sell. It's much harder to just sell data. Whereas if you have an application, you have a much larger market that you can sell into. Now, I'm a big fan of data co-ops. Have you found like interesting data co-ops like in other industries that you've studied? Obviously, Zoom Info has a great data co-op. Verisk has a really great data co-op. Do you spend a lot of time like studying these other ones in other industries and then taking them to your market? 
So for our last quarter, I think we announced a really great, I think, breakthrough partnership data co-op with the company called AppAnit. They just renamed themselves to Data AI. They are like the leading data provider on the app ecosystem. So they predict the app ecosystem, their download usage revenues. So they are like kind of think the leading player now. So we able, after many years of mutual relationship, building trust to close amazing partnership with them. And now we use our data to fuel our app estimation. So we're going to integrate their data into our platform and take it into market to our customer, our audience, a little bit different than their audience. So I think this was a great example for data co-op and partnership because we were like the best on the web, mobile and desktop web. We had some app solution and app anywhere the best in the app. And now we kind of join forces here. Is it data co-op or is it more like a BD deal that you guys have done? Like, how do you think about it? I think if you can simplify this more like an OEM deal that we take up any into market and we integrate their data into our platform, building a UI on top of that, merge it. The, basically, the concept was we are the best in that and you're the best in that. Let's build a place in our platform that companies who want to see really full visibility for the digital world end-to-end with the best data providers, they have it there like really premium top-notch offering. And this is the mental model behind it. When you think of like sourcing data, which obviously is a big part of any data company's thing, obviously there's ways of like building that crawl data. You can buy data, you can do BD deals for data. Do you think it's like a good data company has to do all of the above? Maybe you start with some niche, but ultimately you have to do everything. Or do you think you focus in just like one particular area to source data? This is a very interesting subject for every DAS company, the buy versus build versus partner. Usually if you're a DAS company, you start that you have your own data, specific data that you have access, or you build the farms, the field that growing the ingredients. So you have one of ingredients. But in order to create a great dish, you need multiple ingredients. And you don't, even a restaurant that's growing on own food, Probably Buy bread some wine buy, or, yeah. buying so wine, so they cannot make wine and everything. You need to, in one point, partner or buy or not build everything by yourself. And then it's a long dialogue. And if I try to think how I look at that, there are some ingredients that are more commodity. So it's always better to partner on those. And there are some ingredients that are like core to what you do. If you're selling sushi, Rice and fish are the core ingredients. It's better that you will grow your rice and grow your fish. And then there's some other like soy sauce. That's part. I don't need to create that. Wasabi, the core elements, I think it's always better for you to control it end to end. Let's think about it like Apple. So now they're creating their own chips. So stuff that are very core, they feel that they're core. It's better to control end to end, I think. In the partner situation, you could have a scenario where the economics start to look pretty different. In the buy and the build, there's a fixed cost to get the data, which could be extremely expensive, could cost millions and millions of dollars to get the data. But then the marginal cost of selling the data is a very, very high margins to sell the data. You could have a scenario in a partner where there's some sort of rev share. So it starts to change the marginal cost of a particular product. Like, how do you think that through? And then how does like, the different sales organizations internally incentive change? It's a big problem. Luckily enough for us, we never had in this situation because I was very against any model 
of RevShare in our company because we build a very complex application on top of that. And then it's very hard to, to allocate the dollars. Allocate the dollars. We tried once in the past. It was a disaster. And it always was a fraction that we can argue with our provider about how much and if we're getting full visibility. And I realized very quickly early on the way that we never need to go into that. I prefer to pay a fixed price, even if it's a premium. I take the risk, but it's very clear to me that I will not get into those roller coasters. When you're kind of explaining it to investors, okay, the problem is, let's say you do have to pay a fixed cost for the data. For most data companies, they put that cost in COGS, even though it's not really COGS because it's a fixed cost. And so let's say you pay $10 million for data in year one, you don't have any revenue because you're still building the product or something. It looks like it's a negative $10 million thing that hits your margins. How do you explain this to investors that this is actually really a fixed cost? This was so tough in the beginning. I'm telling you, I remember when we tried to raise money early in the days, it was very hard to investors to understand that they used to seek softwares that are like, I know, like HubSpot or Zendesk, like Workday. They don't know what data cost is, like why, what you have all those layers. So it was very hard to explain about our gross margin. I remember even when, so even when we went public now, you can see that with our scale, how the gross margin was improved dramatically from 56 to 60 to 70 and almost, almost to 80 now. Once you scale, so you need the patient and that companies. It truly is a fixed cost, but for some reason we have to throw it in cogs. Yeah, it's a fixed cost. And this is why in the early days, you know, the only investor that we were able to successfully get was a strategic customers. So customers that use the product and fell in love, so they invest. And they were early because the regular investor was hard for them to understand. And all the time they're getting into a fear of risk. What happens if this data go and if they're dead? Like there's a lot of stuff that they don't deeply understand. The advantage of a DAS data business that you have those a lot of cost upfront, but the barrier to entry is tough, not only to have the cost, but also to get access of the data. So our market, there's far less competition that if you look on the CRM world or the ticketing world, like the support systems, HR system, there's no barrier to entry. That's right. In the data world, it's very, very expensive to get started. It's very weird. So if like you built a crawler, let's say you're going to crawl, you're build a crawler to learn, I don't know, about somebody's terms of service or something, and you crawl all the terms of service, that actually goes below the line that's not in your cogs. But if you contract with someone else who's a crawler and you buy the data from them and you pay them a million dollars for the data, same thing, but now it goes above the line and it goes into your cogs. So it's a very weird thing that doesn't truly make any sense. Accounting didn't thought about does businesses. Exactly. Yeah. So it also, when we are a SaaS company, you see accounting, not really understand the SaaS model because we charge everyone year in advance and get the money. So the way for us to report is still look on revenue when we look ourselves as ARR. So I can see it also in many different angles when the accounting world and how they evaluate businesses is not fully... The good news is most investors now are very, very familiar with everything SaaS related. The DAS stuff is still something that I think people still have to 10 figure years, out. 10 years behind, I agree with you. There's not a lot of public DAS data companies. Maybe there's a handful of them. And then outside of you guys in Zoom Info, there's not a lot of like relatively new ones that have had escape velocity at this point. And even if they are like LinkedIn, I don't think they understand it's a data company. That's right. 
especially LinkedIn get the data for free. It's even more awkward. Interesting. Now, how do you think about like joining data sets? Obviously, you have a ton of data about companies, industries, keywords. There's got to be these kind of like in some ways join keys to kind of link this data together so that we can ask questions across the different things. How do you think about kind of these standardizations or join keys to do that? For us, is built in in the offering because like our core mission is to predict every day how the internet behaves. So we start with that and then we need to go down, make sure that everything is aligned. Like you say, okay, this website have 10 million visits per month. And then, okay, so how much of that come from search? And then if it's search or from which keywords? And if keyword, if it's organic or paid. So everything in the end, so even if we show keywords or everything need to be so in the end need to align to one number. It's kind of the mental model. So it's all, everything need to align and everything need to be connected. So it's a tough task to do and you always need to check from many different angles. But yes, this is how we operate. Interesting. I know that you've made many predictions over the years from the data. Are there kind of like interesting trends that you're noticing now recently that people aren't talking about? We're very strong on predicting trends because as you see the entire internet and everything happened, you know a lot of things before anyone else. You have the full picture. And this is why we're also very strong for investors. We consider one of the best alternative data source today in the world for public investor to get signals on public trading stocks. So if I, there is any interesting insights I can see lately, one interesting insight maybe I did see lately that I'm following is the stagnation of Facebook in the past few years. I think all of us can say that we probably use less Facebook than we used to do five, six years ago. And the new generation is not even getting there from what I'm hearing. And you see it in the data. You see kind of a stagnation. And it's going to be very interesting to see what they're going to do with it in the end. Because Instagram is out there and it's working. They have WhatsApp. They're trying all this metaverse thing. But Facebook, their core is not what it used to be. And I think they are in identity problem now. So I'm really curious to see where it's going to be, where Facebook is going to be in the next five years. I cannot say it, for example, on Google, like their search engine, their core is still useful, growing and used by millions. But Facebook is going to get to identity on their core product. And it's going to be interesting to see where it's going to go. Have you ever thought of maybe creating your own little similar web hedge fund where you guys can trade on some of this information and put some of the dollars behind your conviction? Yeah, it was ongoing dialogue here. And I was very clear, this is not our core strength. Hedge funds, it's a professional thing that you can do. And it's not our core. I saw a case study very similar about Zillow. Zillow, the company you're doing real estate. So they have all the data about their houses and their prices and where they buy. So they decided to be a hedge fund to buy houses and sell them because they have all the data and it didn't work out and the public market hated it. And because our investor relation, RJ joined us a few months ago, he came from there. He was the investor relation. So I had a good conversation with him about the adventure Zillow had on that idea of taking the data asset and try to going into a market that you have no advantage, no really understanding, and it's a different business. And usually it's not... And ultra competitive, not, obviously. I'm really happy where we are, and we have a huge time to go after. We still feel that we're just getting started, and we have a single 
percent penetration in our own markets. So there's so much opportunity, and we can grow the one billion dollar AR business on the current lines of business that we have. So try to get into more adventure right now. It's not on my mind. It's taking what we have that is working and working amazing and just getting it. In some ways, it's kind of a more simple, which is let's compete in areas that we feel very confident we're going to win. And there's obviously a lot of super smart people in hedge funds, so we may not feel as confident there. We're really good at data or something. Yeah, I agree. At Safecraft, we focus really just on one thing, which is just like super high quality data. And there's this tension between quality, like some sort of veracity on one side and scale on the other side. How do you think of that tension? It's a problem that all data companies are getting into how to prioritize between, in our company's accuracy, like how much you spend more to get more accurate, or moving to more platform or more region. So let's say how much I putting effort between improving my accuracy on web versus app and then in app like if it's android or ios and let's say i have a very good estimation in android and only us market what about the other market and then it's becoming a very complex priority metrics that you need to think okay so where we have a sales teams that's selling into markets why is the need like in some areas for example in the app you'll say we have a great android data but the ios is not great it's going to be very hard to sell so you need to in that scenario focus on going platform-wise, other than take Android to more countries. So it's better to have Android and iOS in the US, other than have only Android in all worldwide. So it's always like a business thing you need to take into account in order to understand the market opportunity. And then according to that, to put priorities on data efforts. How does one like figure out, is there some sort of matrix for making some of these hard decisions internally or? Yeah, a lot of dashboards and decisions. We build the science around it. How to make those decisions? Because it's a big decision. You need to send like 20 engineers to go dig water in that side of the world for six months. We need to make sure they find the water. We struggle with this at SafeGraph as well. It's a very, very hard thing. Very hard. Because obviously you could just focus on just making your data more accurate. And obviously that would be good for your customers. But And what accurate means when you stop, and there's perceived accuracy, it's a complex, it's like an art. Do you have a sense that there has to be at least some sort of bar for accuracy? And does that bar change depending on the market you're going? Maybe the bar for India is lower than the bar for Germany or something? Or Yes, it's a very good discussion to do because we struggle with it a lot. And then we realize that in our world, the accuracy is not about how much you accurate, it's how much is the competition are better than you. So if, let's say that you're not accurate, but there's no other alternative, it doesn't matter. They will take anything they have because it's better than nothing. Then a certain amount of accuracy is good enough to the customers. And then you can focus, okay, not about accuracy, but then more about coverage. And when in areas when the competition is tough and there's other alternatives that are more accurate, then you need to work harder, for example. Yeah, we have a similar kind of thing at SafeGraph. We sold data about physical places. And of course, you can always like look up a physical place on Google Maps or something. And so our goal is to be at least as good as Google Maps. And obviously, Google Maps is very good in Texas and very bad in, let's say, Southeast Asia, for instance. So the bar for accuracy for us in Texas is super, super high. The bar for us in Southeast Asia, 
Whatever you give lower. me is good. Yeah, it's whatever you give me is good because the other option is just to be fully blind. Exactly. Cool. I know, obviously, you're a big proponent of the Israeli tech scene. And I know you've publicly said that you think 30% of the Israeli workforce should essentially be in the tech sector, which would be an extremely high number. How do you think that's going to happen? And as the world becomes more distributed, do you think it's necessary for that talent to be in Israel or can that talent be more global? I think it's two different things. First of all, I highly believe in a global talent. Okay, you can hire the best people wherever you find them. This is what's leading us here in similar web. And this is how we work. We are 700 people in Israel and then almost 500, 600 globally. And the thing about the Israel, when I said the 30%, it was about, we have a lot of discussion in Israel because Israel is a small ecosystem. It's like it's the size of the Silicon Valley. I mean, it's eight, nine people. And if you reduce different, like you have extra religion and all kinds of group, you end up with maybe five, four million people the workforce, and then 10% today are working the high tech. And because we don't have a lot of natural gifts like oil and stuff, and we didn't have a car industry, so the high tech is becoming a very, very strong engine. And the ecosystem is really growing. What's happening in Israel is outstanding. And there was a lot of big companies starting to appear. And my approach was when we start to talk with the government and to explain them, listen, because historically, everybody thought here in Israel that high tech is only software or hardware. And what I'm trying to explain them that, listen, tech come to every industry and disturb it. Then everything become a tech. Like we have here Uber, we have Get, it's the local Uber. It's basically, it's a taxi company, but driving through tech. And then you have the food tech and you have the insurance tech. We have Lemonade, it's a public target company. It's insurance company, but it's just tech. So what I'm explaining, try to explain things and you have all those digital banks that is kind of replacing the bank. My assumption was, listen, the technology will come industry by industry and disturbing that in the end, almost everything will be a tech company. And then we need to get to a point that 30% of the people will work for those, what you consider a tech, but today they're not, what we consider as tech is need to be much broader. Oh, okay. Interesting. Got it. So you're working for a taxi company like you were before, but now it's a tech-driven company. Or yeah, like, like Uber. That. Uber, it's a taxi company. But when people who work on Uber, doesn't think that they work in a taxi company. Or if you're working for an uh, Amazon warehouse worker or something like that, you don't necessarily think you're a tech worker necessarily. Maybe you really are, actually. Israel really benefited massively in the 80s and 90s from all this wave of immigration, very, very, very high-skilled immigrants that came from the former Soviet Union and some of the other countries that were under the influence of the former Soviet Union. There's maybe still a little bit of that wave of immigration to come, but it's mostly over. Where do you see this? Like, Is everything now really has to be homegrown from here on in? Or how do you see that kind of talent changing? This wave of immigration who come like 30 years ago in the 90s was amazing. Basically, it changed the entire landscape of Israel, really able to scale also as a tech nation. We got amazing talent. And it's a big question here in Israel how they can reproduce this wave of immigration. Because if you think about the U.S., they have constantly immigration coming to the U.S., and we need to solve it here, how to think about the next wave. I hopefully will, now that Israeli kind of transition herself from a startup nation to a scale nation, because now the past year, I think there was maybe 20 companies going public here in Israel. It's like the signals of there's a lot of 
big companies building big ecosystem here and our global companies what there was very rare so i hope that a lot of israel that went out of israel to work for big companies because there are no big companies in israel historically maybe now some of them can come back and maybe this will be a great wave to fuel the really great ecosystem that is flourishing but if not we will go out why are the housing prices so high and the price of a home in tel aviv on a price per square foot basis is significantly higher than san francisco it's crazy it could be like 2x san francisco in tel aviv why is it that high like what is the issue there there's two reasons the first nice reason because tel aviv is amazing i don't want to say it's just amazing place amazing everyone loves it okay the best city in the world and i know people like san francisco but san francisco in the end is not such a great city it doesn't have the nightlife the beach the weather so tel aviv is really unique combination of everything so from all of israel people just want to live in the tel aviv metropolis and then the second thing that happened it's that what happened in tel aviv was similar to the issue that happened to san francisco that you got a lot of tech people working and getting great salaries a lot of exit a lot of ipos people get a lot of wealth coming in to employees and then the price start to go up and on top of that i assume a lot of jewish from around the world coming back to israel because this country got to flourish so there a lot of immigration coming and everybody coming back to israel want to live in tel aviv because if you are jewish no matter where you get the israeli citizen so it's very easy for you to immigrate to israel and then a lot of them came and a lot of money coming and it's very small israel like it's hard to explain how small it is it's like smaller than manhattan and think that in have all those business all those crazy companies all those unicorns in manhattan hiring thousands of employees paying them well so it's creating this condensed price increase in the ecosystem and what do you think i mean there's a lot of israeli talent that lives outside of israel a lot of people live in silicon valley and other places like what would need to happen to bring some of that native talent back to israel I think the growing of those big global companies here in Israel a lot of them left Israel because they were looking to get great salaries and grow their career to manage other people like scaling because in Israel historically it was mostly startups so if you want to get real scale or great experience in big global companies you couldn't find that easily in Israel so you had to leave and I think it's changed now so I think that this change of as I said the scale nation I hopefully will bring those people back because they have great career opportunities I really hope this thing will happen got it and you don't think we need to get better schools or better like there are other things that it's really just this uh, economic opportunities education in Israel is amazing like it's free first of all also health is free it's high level so we're good okay awesome this has been great okay last question we ask all of our guests What is the conventional wisdom or advice that is generally bad advice? Oh, <laughs> the bad advice. I remember when I started ramping up my company 10, I think the advice always you must open an office in San Francisco. You must. <laughs> this is like the number one advice everybody was trying to give me. This is where everything is up and although we have a nice office in San Francisco, it's really great and we have great talent, but you know it's very tough competitive environment so i remember it was advice that everybody was getting and you now you go you put a lot of effort, you open and then you see it's not the best advice it's not the number one thing you had to do there's other thing when you're starting a company in israel that is kind of 
back then was very far from the main action in the Silicon Valley. That was always like a perception that you must be there, you must have an office there. So I think this is usually an advice that usually wasn't the best advice to give to the companies. It was wrong because of what? It was wrong because, first of all, you need to put a lot of efforts to open an office there. And, and for us, think about the time difference. First of all, it's, I think, only for time to communicate. It's like 10 hours different. So working with the West Coast, for me, it's like... It's very difficult. Very, very difficult. And then there was not even a direct flight. So even to get there... All right. It's, we're talking about... That only started like five years ago or something, yeah. It's before Zoom was very popular. And then it was taking so much time, effort, the community was so hard. And it was a perception that was not right perception. Everybody was imagined because all the money was there and all the big companies was going there. And a lot of strong talent there, but you couldn't get your hands on this strong talent because this strong talent was going to Facebook and Google and Apple. And when you come, you are nothing. And you cannot pay them. And it was usually a very bad advice. I think that all historically. All right, this is great. Or offer great to have you on World of Jazz. Where should people find you on the broader interwebs? So LinkedIn, of course. Okay, of course. I'm yeah. trying to be more active on Twitter lately. Let's see how. Yeah, I'm following works. you on Twitter. Love it. All right, well, great. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much, my friend. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.